Welcome to FACT, Liverpool's online conversations. My name's Leslie Taker and I'm the Exhibitions Manager at FACT. Um, this is the first of a series of online talks that brings together artists, researchers, activists and educators to discuss, share stories, create ideas about how we can build frameworks for resilience which is something we're all talking about um, a lot. Sorry, I'm just on there. There we go. Sorry, Salim's just having a video problem because of access. Um, so for those of you who don't know Fact Liverpool, we're based in Wood Street in the city centre in Liverpool, UK, and we're a multi-purpose art centre. We support and exhibit art and film that embraces new technology and digital culture, as well as uh, hosting quite a lot of discursive events around those issues, of which this is one. Um, if you want to find out about more, that what if you want to find out more about what Fact does, you can go to fact.co.uk, have a look at our full online program and what we would normally have in the building when we're not in the lockdown. Um, I also wanted to say that these sessions are presented in collaboration with Artsformation, which is a European project that FACT are one of the partners on, um, and we'll be doing quite a lot of work with the Artsformation project in the next two years. So, a couple of just small digital housekeeping points before we begin. At the bottom of your screen, if you want to, you can activate closed caption or activate a live transcript if you need that. Um, we'd recommend the transcript because it's a little bit better. It is an AI closed caption, so it's not always great, but we are going to record the whole suite of sessions and publish them online with full human subtitles after the fact. Um, and we'll send that out to all participants who've signed up for the um, newsletter as well. So we'd also love to hear your questions for the speaker. So if you do have any questions, there's a Q&A function down at the bottom. Don't try and put them in the chat because the chat isn't open for that. Um, but yeah, if you put them in the Q&A, they'll come through to us and then we can pop them in the chat so everyone can see them as well. Even if you have like a technical thing or you notice that none of us can be heard, something like that, just do it through the Q&A function. That'd be awesome. And someone on the team will do our best to help you out. You can also share your thoughts during the session by tweeting us at fact underscore Liverpool using the hashtag FFR2021, which someone's going to pop in the chat for you now, um, in case you couldn't hear my lispy pronunciation. Um, so that's it. Hopefully you're not going to hear too much from me from the session because we've invited a moderator, Luisa Prado de Omata who will be taking control of the whole session. You might hear me just pop up with a question because I get overexcited and um, I'll do an outro at the end. So just to tell you a little bit about this session, it's called Ecological Empathy. And today we're gonna to be focusing on how we encounter and access the natural world, who controls our relationship with the environment and the inequalities within these controls. Key to our discussion will be a focus on education, collaboration, playfulness and care. So to guide us through this, these topics, very thankfully, we've got Louisa. We've also got our wonderful panelists, Edna Bonhomme, Shona Short and Celine Simon. And Louisa will ask them to just say a little bit about what they do at the beginning. But if you want to see their full bios, you can on the webpage 
for this event, which will be posted in the chat in a second. Um, I think that's everything. Hopefully I can be quiet for a talky session, which is very nice for me, but um, that's it. So I'll hand over to you, Louisa, and thank you so much to all of the panelists for agreeing to do this and for being the guinea pigs for our first conversation session and our first live online discussion event. So uh, thank you. <laughs> um, thank you, Leslie, for, uh, for organizing this. And thank you to all our panelists, um, Edna, Celine, and Shona for participating today. I wanted to, as Leslie mentioned, I wanted to start briefly with an introduction from each one of you um, where you talk a little bit about your work. Um, and maybe I'm also gonna introduce myself briefly so um, you also have kind of an idea of where I'm coming from. Um, I'm an artist and researcher and my work over the past, oof, at this point, I think, seven, eight years, um, I've been looking into the relationships between, um, or entanglements, let's say, between technologies and, and practices related to reproduction and, um, and coloniality, and of course, also anti-colonial forms of resistance. And I've been, um, that took me to a whole path of initially looking into things like birth control pills and so on, but eventually I ended up in, uh, um, in herbal medicine. And uh, for the past, I would say, um, three or so years have been engaging um, very closely with questions related to, um, to plants and how we, um, what plants teach us um, and what uh, we can learn from these um, from these relationships that we built with these other beings. And also particularly, I've been very interested in the networks of care, which is a big subject today for us, but the networks of care that emerge also around that, around um, particularly uh, when we think about uh, reproductive medicine and herbalism as forms of intercommunal care within marginalized communities. So that's kind of where I'm coming from. Um, and I would like to now invite you to talk a little bit about what you've been doing, what you've been up to. Um, so maybe let's start, who would prefer to start? Shona, Edna, Celine? Yeah, I'm happy to go, I'm happy to go first. <laughs> I must admit that I do apologise. I'm referring to notes at this point because this is always where I completely forget who I am and what I'm interested in. I will not be referring to notes for the rest of the conversation, but I always go a little bit blank at this point when they say, introduce yourself and your practice. And I go, hmm, I can't actually remember what that's about. So I do apologise. But uh, So I'm a social practice artist based in the northwest of England. Um, I make playful participatory work with and about marginalised communities and conduct investigations through performative interactions. So um, I'm interested in making visible the languages and metaphors around hierarchies. Um, I'm a little bit obsessed with the concepts of up and down and clean and dirty. If anyone's familiar with my work, they come up quite a lot. 
um, both in relation to the natural world and to human societies, and how this kind of language is used to other and to remove empathy. Um, and as a counterpoint to that, um, which links very much into what Louisa was saying, um, I'm interested in how communities like my own, which are very short on money and material resources, develop alternative currencies and value systems. So um, based on care, um, so social bonding capital, uh, exchange, and how this could offer a new model and um, framework for resilience. Um, and that was a starting point for the piece that I made for Fact Online, which I believe is still live on the Fact website, quick plug there, um, which was called Pests, um, which I don't, we may or may not get to talk about at some point, but if not, please do, once this conversation's finished, go and have a look at that, and hopefully you'll see some of these themes coming through from that piece as well. Thank you, Shona. Um, Celine or Edna would... Edna, you want to go? You can go first. <laughs> I thought I would go and get it over with. <laughs> so my name is Céline and uh, Céline Seman. I am based in New York. I'm a Lebanese. I, uh, my work has been um, around the notion of uh, displacement, identity, and uh, colonialism, but through the lens of uh, of uh, environmental and human rights, for instance. My, uh, I run a non-for-profit called Slow Factory. And Slow Factory is um, an institution that works at the intersection of, of environmental justice and human rights. And um, the way that I came to this, uh, this work, let's say it's through a lived experience. Um, I'm a first generation war survivor. I've ex escaped the war with my family as a child. And uh, as a refugee, we found um, a, a way to live in, in Canada, in Montreal for a few years. And then once the war uh, sort of had a ceasefire in Lebanon, we went back to Lebanon in the mid nineties and uh, witnessing the, the, the cost the war had on the country, both on a environmental and on a human rights has definitely shaped the way that uh, my work has uh, has been influenced since that age. So I was a teen back then and uh, very fascinated with the notion of uprising and revolution and the bottom up movements. And so Slow Factory is definitely uh, an organization that um, uh, facilitates bottom up approaches and creates a way for uh, information to be distributed in an accessible way, information around sustainability literacy, around um, uh, economic literacy, around political education. And all of that is kind of uh, under the guise uh, of fashion studies <laughs> because uh, fashion studies are um, a great disguise for all of this. And it's a, a great way to, to swallow the pill of coloni colonization. And it's also a very influential industry and essentially everybody has to get dressed, everybody has to wear clothes, so it's everyone's problem. Um, the fashion industry is, in, is very intimately tied with uh, colonialism and so that's the kind of work that we do is to figure out new systems that are good for the earth and good for the people and through education what we call open education, which is free education, anti-institutionalized education, 
anti-disciplinary uh, education that we explore these topics. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Celine. So I guess it's my turn. Sorry, I'm very shy when it comes to, <laughs> to explaining who I am. Uh, so my name is Edna, but before I begin, I also want to thank um, everyone, my co-panelists, and also those who uh, are care workers who are able to make it possible for all of us to be here. Um, and I want to say that I'm a historian of science, a writer, and um, at times interdisciplinary artist. And in many ways, I try to um, engage in acts of curiosity through storytelling and world making. Um, uh, but more concretely, I'm very much engaged in thinking about and exploring ideas of contagion, epidemics, and uh, toxicity. Uh, on the one hand, some of that is very much based on um, kind of personal experience and anecdotal ideas, especially with respect to being a person of Haitian descent and how um, when I think about epidemics and how that impacted people um, in the Haitian community, it was one in which in the 1980s, they were part of um, the 4-H club. That is to say, uh, four groups, main groups were blamed for spreading HIV in the 1980s. Um, and they were homosexuals, heroin users, hemophiliacs, and Haitians. And when I first discovered that as a young person, um, I tried to understand like why it was considered the modern plague and how the plague as a concept um, very much has been historicized and understood from the 14th century onwards and what we can do to embody different forms of medical knowledge and how do we explore this, um, not just as a kind of historical phenomenon or biological phenomenon, but one that is tied to affect. At the same time, um, one of the things that drives my work is thinking concretely about um, medical narratives, um, creating BAM-centered archives, um, very similar to Lisa. What does it mean to think about family herbal knowledge as, a, as an archive that's actively being produced? And how do we tell stories about the people who are often left out of medical histories? Um, so uh, those are the things that inform my practice, one um, that tries to um, overturn and um, really challenge uh, the stereotypes that exist upon people who have been historically vilified by um, the histories of medicine, while also reclaiming and trying to um, hold true and fast uh, to activists who've been very great about um, uh, rallying for medical equity, such as ACT UP during the HIV AIDS epidemic, or people who are trying to find um, ways to highlight the, the, um, the disparities that disability people are impacted by and really trying to um, ensure that marginalized people are front and center uh, when we think about health and healing practices. So that, that's it for now. Thank you. Um, it's wonderful to hear each one of you talk about your, your respective practices because um, I mean, first of all, I think it's Leslie's wonderful work of bringing every one of us together here. Um, and uh, to me, it's very beautiful to hear that and to hear you talking about this, because I see in each um, in each one of your practices, and also I guess um, I'm also including myself in this too, um, in the projects that um, all of us have been developing. Um, kind of a thread of struggling against certain odds, right? And uh, I think there is a lot um, that speaks to, in a way, the miracle of surviving and continuing within a system that 
is made and designed to disavow the lives of certain people um, and whilst you know um, consuming uh, us in order to uh, to um, promote and and further the life of others and that of course you know is a conversation that uh, that draws us back to the question of coloniality and the colonial project and how um, you know, when we think about ecological empathy, which is kind of the, the general theme of this panel, um, there is, uh, I think, a, a thread that draws us back to the colonial project and the, the initiation of the colonial project as a project of consumption, consumption of subjectivities, consumption of worlds, consumptions, consumption of um, everything that is seen as a so-called resource, which is a problematic term that I think we can uh, probably discuss uh, later on, but a term that I, I, I'm fascinated with, this idea of resources, natural resources. Um, you know, what constitutes that? What gives us the, the right to consume that? So I think it's um, very beautiful to, to see these common threads of survival and uh, and um, and um, and staying on continuing on within uh, this context um, and I think I wanted to to bring this up because when we talk about um, empathy and when we talk about uh, or when we try to to discuss and access these questions, around encounters with the natural world. I bring up coloniality because it is something that has fundamentally shaped the way that we relate to one another, the way that we relate to, um, to the world. And um, I've been, uh, for the past couple of semesters, I've been teaching um, quite a bit. And uh, one thing that keeps coming up in the courses that I'm teaching and in the classes that I'm teaching is, um, you know, of course, we, we discuss all those questions around coloniality. Um, it's uh, like the really the, the, the base of what we've been talking about and our analysis, the analysis that we've been developing around coloniality is the, uh, the creation of hierarchies, right? Hierarchies that determine that um, some must be served and some others must be must serve and must um, or some others must be consumed if we think about the question of, of resources. Um, I think I wanted to ask perhaps um, first this question, perhaps explore this question around resources and around um, around consumption and consumption, a consumption that is not only of, you know, objects and, and, um, and things, but also of peoples, because I think it goes around everything that you've been discussing. So I wanted to ask, um, how do you particularly, I guess, maybe let's start uh, with Celine, if that's okay. Um, thinking about this question of resource and 
and consumption. How do you um, approach in your work and with the Slow Factory and with projects that you've been developing, how do you approach um, these questions um, around the, the, let's say, unequal distribution of, um, of um, empathy really and personhood and subjectivity that leads to these inequalities and uh, that leads to uh, the, the creation of a world and a context where some are afforded nothing while others are, um, are allowed to um, navigate the world pretty much um, without accountability. Thank you, Lisa. What a question <laughs> to start my morning. It's <laughs> quite early here in New York. I mean, not that early, it's 920. Five. <laughs> um, <clears throat> I think the question of equality versus equity is important to look at from the beginning. Mm -hmm. uh, what we look at at Slow Factory is the, uh, the discipline of equity-centered design. And instead of looking at it from the perspective of human-centered design, which was a discipline um, designed literally by, um, by a, a few white men, which is basically the entire discipline of design. <laughs> they, they, they have a lot of blind spots when it comes to equity. And equity was introduced later on with the equity-centered design project and this idea that it's not the equality or the, 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 the redistribution of, uh, of resources alone. It's also looking at justice, looking at acknowledging the inequalities that are um, justified by colonialism, justified by white supremacy, continue to be imposed in such a way by a hierarchy of value, uh, human value, resources, um, a political value, ethnicity, everything is uh, weighed on a certain scale that uh, is completely fictitious, but that is imposed and that is adopted across the board. And so, um, when we are looking at, okay, how do we redistribute resources to all people? How do we install empathy? How do we work around empathy? Um, th there is a lot of unlearning that needs to happen in that level because when we come with a sense of empathy, a lot of times the ones that are the most privileged are uh, going to want to um, save, <laughs> quote unquote, others. But this notion of saving, saviorism, is also problematic, even though if it comes with a lot of good intention around empathy or around sympathy, it's not possible to implement uh, before we look at e e equity and justice and before we really uh, decentralize, let's say, the conversation, the narrative, the who, who gets to talk, who gets to share. Because oftentimes in these... Um, topics and disciplines we are looking at being the voice of the voiceless, which is extremely violent, um, let's say. Um, and, you know, with the rise of social media, we've seen movements like pass the mic, you know, like don't be the voice of the voiceless, just let others tell their own story. And if you don't understand them, that's because they don't necessarily want to code switch. They don't necessarily want to be understood uh, in an easy way, there needs to be unlearning. 
and the creation of a common language, but an effort that is uh, now and disproportionately on the shoulders of the uh, less fortunate, the less uh, privileged, uh, what we call the, the, the marginalized or the oppressed, minor, the global minority, which in fact is the global majority <laughs> when we look at it. Um, and it's on the shoulders of the of the misunderstood, the oppressed, the, 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 the marginalized to code switch to, 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 to try to communicate in a way that is understood by, by the, the global north. Uh, and, and therefore, I think there needs to be um, readjustments of, uh, of, uh, of this responsibility and the desire to learn the other should also come from uh, the privileged, the most privileged in unlearning their own biases and adopting uh, and engaging in, in, in learning in, in, in this uh, ongoing learning in a very humble way to be able to come closer and closer to, to this other part of the truth that they don't have access to. Thank you, yeah, that's, I, I really love that um, your approach to this because I mean, full disclosure, my training is as a designer <laughs> originally. So I've been engaging with also uh, very similar questions over the past few years. Um, and particularly, I think I've always been very interested, you know, the, what you, when you mentioned about this, this idea about human-centered design, that is such a problematic uh, <laughs> approach and field to me because assumes that the category of human is homogenous in the first place, which is not the case, right? And I think um, also in the work of Edna and Shona, this also appears, this question, this the, the problematics of the category of the human and assuming this, um, this um, homogenous nature to the human that is, um, that is not true because there are inequalities that we need to deal with before we even begin to talk about that. So um, following up on that, I'd like to ask uh, then perhaps um, Edna, you already mentioned um, a little bit of this in your introduction. Would you like to talk a little bit about how do you approach these questions in your work and um, the category of like human and um, and um, these questions around uh, uh, equality and equity. Yeah, thank you so much. And I'm honored and humbled to be engaged in a conversation in which we had the time to dig deep into these um, ideas. And I agree with uh, Celine that in many ways, um, it's important to think about unlearning and to really uh, confront privileges, especially um, those of us who move in and out of privileges, depending on what spaces we might be in, what countries we're in, passports that we hold. Um, and, and I guess I want to also go a step further, um, not just thinking about empathy, but also how care operates into these discourses. Um, and for me, care as a, a concept is something that I've been actively trying to unpack not just as like an analytical category or um, something tied to what happens to be part of an artistic trend right now, but also as a proactive exercise where we can um, put our goodwill into action. And in many ways, the pandemic has put that front and center, especially if we think about the who is more likely to get sick, 
who's more likely to die, um, who's blamed uh, for getting sick when that happens, and how, um, you know, e even with the vaccine right now, vaccine nationalism, and what, what role that has in shaping how that gets distributed on the international level. So in some ways, um, the discourses around this cannot be um, uh, disentangled from the histories of, of colonialism. They can't be disentangled from the histories of uh, medical experimentations and how people might absorb that. They can't be disentangled from um, ideas about what um, one scholar has referred to as therapeutic citizenship. Um, and it also makes me think of Susan Sontag's work on illness as a metaphor, um, where in that, in that piece, and I highly recommend it, where um, she wrote specifically on how people hold this dual citizenship of um, being either sick or well, and some people find themselves um, constantly in that kingdom of the sick, um, as she describes, and what that means with respect to care, and, um, and obviously under pandemic healthcare, um, seems to really reveal um, how uh, certain people under global context are perpetually made to be ill, not through their own um, impetus, but through systems of inequality that perpetuate um, forms of collective trauma tied to imperialism, tied to racism, tied to slavery. Um, and all of this is just to, 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 to point out that in, in the work that I, I'm trying to do right now and the research that I'm trying to do, especially since I live here in Berlin, Germany, what does it mean um, for Black African diasporic people um, who um, are living here to experience um, this pandemic and to witness it? And how does um, survivor's guilt in some cases impact um, how people experience the, um, this pandemic? How do, does collective exhaustion heighten anxiety? How do communities and people who have relatives abroad who died how do they cope with um, uh, that emotional and um, you know, trauma of not being able to grieve with, um, with one's kin? Um, those anxieties um, are part of a, non, like a new trend that is not unique specifically to Black people here in Germany, but also even beyond. Um, what, what are the ways in which um, we can offer some form of um, uh, reprieve <laughs> From this from this ongoing pandemic and and how do we how do we document that um, at the same time I think one of the things that uh, is important in the movements that I've seen um, whether it's here in Europe or in North America or on the African continent is this push and this need for um, people to also find joy and pleasure in their work so uh, to be able to figure out these alternatives of creating and constructing black futures so if we think about this month of February is Black History Month and Black Futures Month. Um, and it's been absolutely wonderful to also see the counter narratives that people um, have been um, constructing in this moment. So uh, when I think of Kimberly Drew's and Jenna Wortham's book, Black Futures, which um, is, is quite excellent and really giving a snippet of um, the success and the activism and art uh, that is being produced by people who see us in the future. While at the same time, the memoirs that are coming out by like Syed Jones, um, Alicia Garza, Patricia, Patricia um, Khan Colors, also highlighting how the Black Lives Matter movement has been pivotal to ensuring that um, we are here and we can um, continue and that we can be able to have that care. So I guess um, to, <laughs> to wrap up a very um, long um, answer is just to say that uh, I think in, in my practice and in the work that I do, um, it's important for me to highlight 
um, similar to Celine, who is left out while, not, while also not taking too much space, but then also um, allowing um, room for us to also think about uh, collective joy, collective um, pleasure, and, and new modes of being uh, that don't reproduce the inequalities and the traumas and injustices that we face in our lives today. And that can uh, often come through writing art forms and, and collective action. Thank you, Edna. Um, we already have one question by an attendee, but before moving on to that, I would like to also uh, have Shona talk a, a little bit about um, your own practice. And particularly, um, I remember, you know, in our preliminary conversations, when we were discussing um, kind of what we were going to talk about, um, I, I remember, or and today too, you mentioned the importance of playfulness in your practice. And I think this connects quite beautifully with what Edna was talking about in relation to joy and the importance of care and these, um, these care practices in um, shifting these structures that are uh, so present in life and that they, they, it feels so difficult when we talk about coloniality and capitalism and the failures of that and the suffering that that creates, it seems impossible to overcome that. And I think um, as part of, uh, I guess, all of our practices, it's um, uh, touching upon or, or accessing this dimension of joy and pleasure and, and care is really fundamental. And I think playfulness is a, a beautiful way of, of doing that. So I'd like to ask you a little bit about that. Yeah, I think, I mean, playfulness and, and humor are really important to my practice as I think it's a challenge. Um, there's this idea of, of kind of high status, um, particularly when it comes to art objects or art making have to be very serious. And I think humor is, a, is kind of, is almost a radical act. It's almost a radical act to laugh. Um, and it's, it's not to say these aren't really serious issues around structural inequalities, but, it, but to laugh and to, to find the playfulness in that, um, I think is really, really important. And also it makes it relatable to a wider audience, um, which makes, you know, hopefully gets a message out wider than just kind of the sort of standard people that would go and look in a gallery. Um, so for example, for that, talking about kind of dehumanizing language, I've done a lot of work around um, the language that's used to describe people who live on council estates. So, um, you know, examples of that are kind of filth and scum, bred by filth and scum, which, you know, is, is an awful description of, of human beings. Um, but it's a kind of a playful response. I did a piece, a series of pieces where I um, used fake tan to spray messages on my back, um, picked up from some of the messages from white vans that I'd seen around. So it's, I had one that said, I wish my wife was this dirty. And it was playing with the idea of um, kind of, you know, dirt as, as humans and dirt as sexual and dirt as morality and dirt as money, um, rather than kind of just thinking about these really awful insults and dehumanization of people. Um, so I think it's really important to kind of, to have that element of playfulness because I think that does then challenge the establishment. I think it's almost as an expectation if you'd be saying these are really serious issues and therefore I'm gonna present them in a very serious way and everybody will consider them 
very worthy, but not necessarily want to act on them, where I think there's, there's more chance um, of people really engaging with things that have that playfulness. But also I think there's the, an element of our lives are not just about work. Um, there's this whole thing, particularly around class and working class people that um, about a working class ethic and respectability and respectability being tied to how, how hard you work and having this work ethic and the leisure time and play of working class people being of less value than um, the elite. So how we choose to use our leisure time is, is low culture and, it, and is less worthy. And we really shouldn't be thinking about that. We should be thinking about these 10 hour shifts that we need to put in to prove that we are valuable and contribute to society. Um, so I, again, I'm working on a project on that on the moment and really just saying we, we have the right to play. We have the right to be joyful. We, our lives are as full of joy and they're as full of grief as everybody else's lives. We are all human. And I think that's really important to kind of to not try and make any one group of people in any way homogenous or unnuanced um, when trying to like look at this idea of kind of empathy. Thank you, Shona. Um, it's, it's really nice to kind of have these different um, overviews that still connect in so many ways to kind of start this conversation. And as I mentioned, we already have one question or two questions at this point by attendees. So I'll start with the first one. So we have an attendee who asked, would it be possible for um, the speakers to give any concrete examples of things they did or made or actions they took to help illustrate the discursive points that they make? So is there, um, so to, is there any project that um, that you think would connect that you would like to mention and um, that kind of illustrates this and connects to these conversations that we're having. Um, I can go first if um, no one else wants to go. Um, I would say that in terms of within this current moment, more concretely what I've been doing and examples of how I try to exercise ideas of um, care for the world and also for myself is by actively uh, trying to integrate my ideology and um, anti-racism and feminism into my practice. So unfortunately, I can't escape the consequences, the negative consequences of white supremacy and anti-blackness and sexism and xenophobia. So um, one of the, the ways that kind of is for me, a healing practice is to write and research about marginalized people. So I, I have uh, been uh, proactive about writing about uh, Breonna Taylor, um, uh, doing research on um, uh, Black maternal mortality, especially as it impacts people in uh, people with wounds um, in North America and beyond. Um, thinking about the history of Germany and colonialism since I live here and being, you know, as someone who um, benefits from the resources that are in this country, um, being accountable to um, um, the, the full range of ways in which um, the government and the state has um, profited from Black suffering. But beyond that, I think that concretely for me, teaching has also been a tool similar to Louisa about thinking about how pedagogy is important right now in a pandemic. I'm currently teaching a course on pandemics um, so that my students and I can proactively think about um, how um, obviously histories are different from what is happening today, but looking at those parallels, looking um, can allow us to have the tools to really cope 
um, more actively. And I think also too, um, at least with art practices, I try not to do those as a solitary practice. So most of the art practices I've done in the past three years has, have been about collaboration. So my, my principle being if I eat, everyone eats. Um, and so uh, the last collaborative piece I had was um, in December with um, my collaborator Mia Amani Harrison. And we had a virtual gallery space um, called Dreaming Black Futures, in which we were avatars and BPOC, Black, Indigenous, and other people of color came into that virtual space um, that we created. And we talked about our dreams, our ancestors' dreams, the dreams that we think um, offspring, our offsprings would potentially have. Um, and, and having those spaces have been very important, but um, those spaces, the writing and the pedagogy isn't enough. I think beyond that, um, donating to mutual aid funds that directly impact the most marginalized. So transgender people, black people, migrants, there've been plenty of mutual aids that I've contributed to um, and then also protesting when it's necessary. So, um, so obviously socially distanced and with masks. So supporting um, the protest here uh, that were for um, the um, Nigerians who were against SARS and the policing, as well as the BLM solidarity protest here. Um, and I guess the one thing I would end with, which is um, I think it's also important for us to take care of ourselves as we're doing all of this stuff. So learning how to rest, learning how to explore nature and learning how to slow down. And um, this is where I think Celine's work is particularly important that as we are fashioning new narratives and new worlds for each other, as we're providing care, we also have to like uh, learn how to provide that care to ourselves. So one of the things that I, I think is important in this moment is to explore nature if one has access to it, to take walks, to really use nature as therapy as so as to give the space of, um, for us to be able to, to do more as a collective as opposed to going through burnout. So that, that balance um, is so necessary if we're going to um, have any um, substantive long-term um, impact on the world. I just want to jump in very quickly. Um, th that's amazing, Edna, what you said. It's so true. I feel like in the work that we do, um, and of course, depending on which culture we come from, uh, the relationship to joy, the relationship with rest is broken in many ways because we have had uh, to survive or to be on survival mode for so long that it's not uh, it's not reconciled with the 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 notion of staying still or being present with our bodies, ourselves, taking care of ourselves. And specifically as women, women of color, I'm sure in uh, black women, indigenous women, brown women, Arab women, um, we tend, I mean, I, I don't wanna generalize, but for me as an Arab woman uh, in our culture, we put ourselves last, like we are going to just do everything for everyone else and forget about ourselves. There's this, um, global culture in the global south that's about uh, you know a competition of generosity if you will which does not exist in the global north so when you travel to the global north you tend to get uh, taken advantage of very easily because there isn't any un any uh, understanding in the culture and society that this is a, a a culture of reciprocity and indigenous knowledge understands that and articulates that's really really well i think that i've learned a lot from reading um uh, black authors indigenous authors because they've had the way to articulate these things that we also you know, believe in and, and, 
and uh, you know we, we we i feel like um this rest this joy this um being in 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 a in a place of peace is um not only restorative but also allowing us to articulate words to articulate the lived experience to be able to put to paper like you're saying and not to be able to write to research these things are so precious in preserving our culture for example for for us who have lived multiple wars and i was just discussing yesterday with my mom as i'm doing a research i can't find any any information about a certain period of time in the Middle East, in Lebanon particularly, there's literally nothing. And she was like, you need to talk to the oral historians because these are the ones who are collecting this, this knowledge. And uh, I was like, oh my God, where do I access those guys? They're not on Twitter, they're not anywhere. <laughs> and so that's again, part of the the, the rest and the, the healing and the, the the collection of our stories and the preservation of our culture, despite all odds, despite the algorithm, despite the Americanization and the globalization of information. Like if you Google, for example, colonialism in the first 10 pages of Google, it starts in 1400. It does not talk about anything prior to that. It, it's as if everything before that did not even exist. So all of these things, um, it's about pacing ourselves, I guess, in in how we we look for these information and where's the limit between like I'm healing but I'm burning myself out <laughs> in between those things. I think there's a super interesting question here that actually connects to to something that I've been thinking about, and then actually Edna and I were part of a podcast kind of panel conversation where we we kind of approach this and the 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 question that we were discussing there is um so once our survival then is predicated on constantly saying yes and constantly being making yourself available constantly being there and working and doing things how do you even learn to say no it's a massive task and this is how you <laughs> we end up burned out and not taking care of ourselves. And this is a kind of um, this stretching, this overstretching of ourselves is something that is particularly demanded um, from people who are uh, marginalized in function of their gender and their race and their class and so on and so forth. And it's something that uh, Shona, definitely you mentioned this when you were talking about the question of the work ethic Right. Yeah, I mean, I think if anybody does know how to say no, if they could pass that information on to me, that, that would be wonderful <laughs> because it is something I have yet to learn because you live with the precariousness um, of if I say no to this, then I am shutting something off that will then lead to, you know, me back being in a situation which actually is. Um, you know, for me and my family, it's, it's very precarious and it's really, really hard to say no. I think it's much, much harder for people who live on in that precarious situation to say no um, and to allow the time for self-care and rest. Um, I think there's a wonderful project um, from the US called the NAP Ministry that talk about 
rest as a radical act, sleeping and napping as a radical act. And I absolutely love that project. Um, and yet somehow, I, even as I absorb that, there's a part of my brain saying, but that's not for you. Um, <laughs> you can't afford to nap. You can't afford to rest. Um, not just from a financial point of view, but also from that judgment point of view, from that, um, that, that usefulness. And I think that comes back to what you were saying about what is a resource um, and the idea of um, the working class in Britain, but also kind of low status communities across the world being seen as a resource in terms of usefulness of having to earn their place somehow. Um, of, of what I say, what, what you can contribute, how hard you work. Um, so I've been looking, I've been doing some research around um, a writer, an amazing writer, sort of rediscovering her work, Ethel Carney Holdsworth, and she talks about how she was a mill worker from Lancashire in the early 20th century, and she talks about how um, the only use that the working class have to society is their hands, we're useful for our hands, but the rest of us isn't used, you know, the, the, the rest of us is not and the rest of us is just seen as excessive. And if they could cut off our hands and just have those operating machines, then, then they would do. Um, and, and that comes back, I think, to that whole idea of constantly um, having to look at status and respectability and the divisions that are imposed on us from above, um, the, the kind of the divisions between the respectable poor and the undeserving poor, um, the divisions between different groups. Um, I think somebody said in the chat about my privilege and I 100% acknowledge that I walk through life with many, many, many privileges while also still being able to say, actually, there are privileges I don't have that other people do. And I, I don't see that as a, um, a clash. I almost see that as a, as a reason to reach out for solidarity um, and the solidarity to find, to, to, you know, to support, to lift other people up. I think that's really, really important. Um, so yeah, I've got more the questions. <laughs> I'll, I'll throw it back to you. No, it's it's uh, it's wonderful to also tap into this question because it reminded me even of the expression "earning a living," right? Even the fact that we talk about living in those terms, earning a living, like as if not every human being was inherently worth of life in no matter what they do, no matter, just for being a, a, a human living being. Um, but uh, I'd like, I think, to kind of continue because now the questions are starting to really come in and we have several already. Um, so there is one question specifically for Selimine that we have here moving on. Um, that says, what Celine mentioned on human-centered design resembled a lot to my design school days, sadly, as well as to my routine at work. As a Brazilian working in tech in Berlin, I see more than the issue with the framework is an issue of non-diverse teams. My question is, what are frame frameworks that you can recommend to stir such debates, most importantly, aiming for faster results in hiring and empowering more diverse teams to result in more conscious product design practices? Wow, what a question. <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, there isn't any quick framework or quick uh, recipe I can share that's like, oh, just do this and that, you know? Um, I'm so sorry. Uh, there's so much 
I always say uh, you have to become a professional troublemaker internally within the organization you are hired to to do work <laughs> and by professional troublemaker I mean um, you know of course we're talking here about uh, good trouble <laughs> which is you know not the work that uh, I, I didn't start up with this uh, with this uh, idea but the idea here is to talk about things in um in a way where and it's very hard and oftentimes it's the most oppressed person that has to talk about those things and oftentimes I would be in a, in a situation where people would be like okay Celine's gonna explain things and go tell them about it and then I, I become the responsible person to educate or explain or do the translation between the group and the the ruling group <laughs> the oppressed group and the ruling group or like broker kind of like a a sort of an agreement as a as a diplomat which I am not I'm a designer so it's there's not a framework that's very easy to be like okay go do this However, I would encourage the organization and everyone within this organization to engage in collective unlearning, okay, or collective open education is basically what we offer at Slow Factory. It's free online open education, peer-to-peer -peer education, anti-institutional, anti-disciplinary, meaning we create a lot of parallels between different disciplines. It's taught and led by Black, Brown, Indigenous, Asian, minority, ethnic folks from the global majority. And, um, and it's, uh, uh, it, it's offered free. And a lot of companies are tuning in and listening to these important conversations because there are ways for people to, and I saw in the question, like I, I, I identify as white uh, in white supremacy, but how do I, you know, basically go past the guilt that I feel to unlearn things. How, I, how do I go past the, uh, the, the fragility, I guess, the white fragility, the, 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 the way to fight it or to debate it because it's, it's atta attacking, attacking your identity. And so I guess there's a lot of these classes or seminars or open classes that are being offered. And for us, it's offered for free, but we do encourage a generous donations, particularly from folks that need it the most. And um, and I guess that companies that engage in, in, in listening to these things or engaging in uh, unlearning or con continuous education in that space benefit so much more because there seems to be a, a feeling of community then within the enterprise you know, changing something is not through a framework. I always say it's through the culture. It's through the culture of the company. If the culture of the company is um, interested in, in bridging the gap between their values and their action, then we have a collective spirit within the company that will hold each other accountable to push for certain things that are around um, the goals, the big lofty goals that, that the company has uh, has identified with you know does that make any sense it's not one framework it's the culture and it's it's through unlearning and through education and through engaging in these types of uh, of uh, of uh, of materials that are offered and available yeah yeah i think it's that's a super important point and i'm also glad that you kind of wove um, this bridge also to a couple of questions that we also have already here. 
um, but are very kind of similar in framing that um, we have two questions that talk about um, uh, whiteness. Um, specifically, there's one question, um, someone saying, I fit into the category of white privilege. How do I prevent myself from becoming defensive and instead learn to unlearn my biases, have more empathy and care for the marginalized? And that was followed by another question for Shona, how to navigate the ideal white privilege when your own lived experience is under-resourced. So I think there's kind of a lot of intersections here, and I use the word intersections um, very consciously, I think, right now, because after all, the, these are questions that pertain, I guess, to intersectionality and uh, uh, how certain identities and certain ways that we navigate the world um, cannot really be disentangled from one another. But I wanted to hear more from, from you, um, Edna, Shona. Uh, would you like to comment on this? Do you have anything? I'm waiting. Here, but, <laughs> but if anyone doesn't want to volunteer, I, I don't. I don't mind talking about it. As I said, I think I, you know, I mentioned in, in in the last sort of answer that um, I'm aware aware of my privileges, very aware of my privileges, and um, also aware of what I don't have and where I am excluded, and um, the challenges and obstacles. The, for myself, for my community, for my children, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I always see, as I said, I see it's an issue of solidarity. Um, I think, and if you were looking at it and thinking, how can I navigate this from a position of privilege? And I think it is about that solidarity. It's about empathy and it's about using the power you do have, whatever power you do have, um, to make sure you're using it to open doors and to make sure that voices are represented that, are, that aren't being heard um, rather than speaking on behalf of those voices. And I think Edna said something similar before about kind of not speaking on behalf of people. Um, so it's about using the privileges you do have to bring more people into the conversation. Um, and to see the idea of privilege and intersectionality not as a competition, because I think that that comes from above, that idea of dividing us comes from above. It should be a case of actually, if we're being oppressed and we're being oppressed for different reasons in different ways, there's, a, there's an element of how do we join together and knock that system down, as opposed to allowing a few people at the top to let us make those divisions wider. Um, and I think certainly in terms of like the media in the UK, this idea of punching downwards, of you know blaming everything on migrants and um, people who claim benefits, when actually you know there's a few very very wealthy people who are hoarding all the resources. Um, so it's that element of who's who's kind of sowing those divisions, and while still being able to recognise different privileges to actually to be saying this is this is what should bring us together this is not what should divide us yeah and i think there's um there's a very important question here also uh, that it's it's interesting how the conversation is 
kind of naturally flowing towards a lot of the points that are being raised in the, in the comments and in the questions that we're getting. Um, but there's definitely um, this point that Shona, you just mentioned, and Edna um, already mentioned too of the question of not speaking on behalf of people, right? And um, whenever I think we start talking about this, we start talking um, about how to, to, I guess, handle the immensity of these structures, how to tackle that. There is often, um, in, the, in a way, um, I guess I see that in the comments a lot, uh, uh, a fear of uh, being perceived a certain way, particularly for uh, the people who are writing these questions from a position of being privileged and so on. Um, but whenever we start kind of going down this path, I'm very often reminded uh, of the work of filmmaker Trin Mingha, uh, who has this wonderful concept um, of speaking nearby. And she, uh, right in the beginning of her career, I mean, many years ago, she, um, the first film that she ever did called Reassemblage is a critique of the ethnographic film genre. And uh, her critique is precisely, you know, the, the figure of the ethnographer, of the anthropologist, going to uh, another community and speaking about them and um, taking this role of the, the translator of someone else. And instead, what she proposes in her work, where she, what she discusses a lot in her work, is the idea of speaking nearby, not speaking on behalf of someone, but being there, being present, and understanding also the opacities and the things that you are not able to see from your perspective, but trying to um, create these articulations nonetheless and trying to, um, to connect in, and while being conscious of also your position in that. And uh, I wanted to also ask uh, Edna, because you've been, uh, you talked quite a bit about this in, um, in your kind of initial input. And uh, I wanted to, uh, to hear a little bit from you also in relation to this. Um. So I don't know, I guess it's a bit complicated for me in the sense that um, on the one hand, it's hard, my, my positionality, my work, isn't necessarily an explanatory thing for white people. <laughs> like, it's really actually a recovery process and archival process and um, an affirmation of a group of people um, with whom I share a common lineage, whether known or unknown, who have faced some form of disenfranchisement. So it's, it's hard to it's hard for me to like provide a concrete, this is what you must do. And that's not the work that I personally am um, and engage with. Uh, and part of that has to do with when I think about my ideology or my love language, it's black feminism, it's um, black queerness, and it's undoing the violence that has been done to people who look like me for centuries and finding inspiration through the ancestors. Um, and it's, a, it's really trying to undo that damage in a world that um, thinks that black women are incapable mothers, that thinks we're insufficient athletes, that think that we are not rigorous intellectual thinkers, uh, ones that, um, as Dorothy Roberts has written about in her book, Killing the Black Body, um, that really shortens our life. And so 
part of my work, and I, I agree with Shona that I, it's important for solidarity to be to practice, um, and it's important for people to see each other as equals. But there's so much damage and you know anti-blackness that people have absorbed, and yeah. Frank Wilderson III has written about this and um, incognito and Afro-pessimism, just that like how anti-backlinks works every day to kill um, the imagination of white people. <laughs> like, you know, Claudia Rankin has written this on um, Don't Let Me Be Lonely, I think yeah, that one where, you know, that, that, that lack of imagination about my the potential people who look like me is so endemic. It's just, it is a pandemic that has been killing us. Um, and so I, I in my work and I in my how I, I, work, I, I write and how I move through this world, I'm trying as much as possible to undo that work, whether it is internalized or not. Um, but it is, it's one in which um, is tied to some of the things that Celine um, had also brought. It's like, when we want to change this world or at least shake things up an institution, it means democratizing knowledge. It means democratizing information. It means, um, you know, you know, redistributing resources. Um, it means reparations, <laughs> like actual reparations, even if it might cause discomfort. And um, and and that is some that is a, a conversation about you know the material wealth that Europe has stolen from Black and Indigenous people has to be reckoned with in a systematic level. Um, and it's going to require not just like a one you know, check being given to someone, but a reshuffling of knowledge and information, of artifacts, of peoples, of memories that have been stolen from us. And so when I get a question, you know, all questions are good, but, like, but it's hard for me to fully answer a question of like, oh, I privilege and what can I do? It's like, well, I, it's not about an individual, it's about an entire system that needs to be overhauled and dismantled. This world as it is currently operating, like it has to be reimagined and re so that so that we don't keep reproducing this violence. Um, and so this, this is where I guess I'm at. And um, it's, uh, and you know, the, it's, it's, it's a process that's not gonna happen overnight. There's no magic bullet, um, but it's a recognition and then actively figuring out what restitution looks like. One that's grounded on uh, feminist, anti-racist, anti-imperialist um, struggle, yeah. Yes, 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 yes. Yes, absolutely, yes. I just wanted to say as well, I think one of the questions that got lost, which was about privilege as well, was about how you, and because it was for Shona, and I think you showed her, you were like, I recognize I'm privileged, but actually I think it was about how you can conquer or face white privilege when you yourself are so under-resourced as well so it's like I think it was um tying into what Edna was saying about like just this idea of being under-resourced and how you understand your own capacity and whether that's like for activism for care for work for being awake for standing up and then how you're like able to have that recognized by the superstructure and by the thing that's trying to constantly force you into denying the limitations of your resource or the prioritization that you've dictated for your own resources so I think there's like a couple of different privilege things going on there but I just wanted to pull that out because I immediately saw you got like the defense thing go like 
no, I understand this, but I also wanted to just say, I think that was where that was coming from, that specific one. But yeah, I just wanted to add, sorry. I'll leave it back to you, Lucy. <laughs> you want um, me to come into that or do you, want, do you want me to come into that? Yeah. Shall sure. I respond to that? Yeah. yeah I mean, yeah. I, I actually, yeah, I don't see it as a defensive thing. I think almost I my natural inclination is to leap in because I see that actually the emotional labour on on having to respond to that question should be on me. <laughs> it really should. <laughs> you know, um, I think in terms of, of of responding to it while being part of an under-resourced community, I think part of the we're under-resourced in terms of money and materials, but we're not under-resourced in terms of capacity for empathy, capacities for change. Um, I mean, I, I hate this 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 tar brush with this idea that kind of working class communities are are where there is a natural home for racism or where there is a natural home for homophobia, because that is not my experience at all. Actually, in my experience. There's a real capacity for human solidarity, empathy within these communities because of their own lived experiences. Um, so I suppose from that point of view, yes, we don't have the um, the capital in terms of the financial capital, the kind of cultural and social capital to, to, to make those changes that need to be made and the reparations that need to be made. But we do have the resources in terms of um the capacity for empathy and change on the ground the capacity to, to reach out and to show solidarity and to support movements and to to do the, some of that labor um within our communities um and i think probably best place to do it as well it's 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 almost that turning turning it back around and you know we, we the anger i think that's there is, is can be really productive is you know there's different types of anger isn't there there's, there's anger that's very self-destructive and there's anger that can be really productive um and i think that productive anger is a resource that can be turned towards trying to knock down um some of the issues of white privilege as well yeah thank you shana that's that's, I think, a, a super important point uh, that I'm, I'm very grateful that you um, that you took this head on. And I'm thinking, well, there's so much that I also want to kind of jump in because I feel that there's so many threads um, that we can explore. But I guess let's let's go with the with the questions because we we keep getting more and more. Um, so there's a question from an attendee saying, I wonder if this discussion around napping and rest, which is um, something we've been circling around, specifically from the perspective of women, is part of the reason ME. Um, can, you, can you please clarify ME and chronic fatigue? was not believed for so long and we still struggle to be taken seriously, even by our families and friends and they comment also the topic of chronic illness is quite loaded just to um, um clarify emmy is um like a chronic fatigue syndrome so it's how it's called here um okay it's like a long-term illness that can have many many different symptoms but the most common is like extreme tiredness to like the point of not being able to move or be awake or yeah mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
Okay, yeah, thank you for clarifying. Uh, but does anyone have um, any comment in relation to that? I mean, of course, you know, when we talk about healthcare and we talk about um, um, healthcare structures, how they deal with people is fundamentally different. And I think um, particularly uh, Edna, I know that you work a lot with the history of pandemics and illnesses. Um, so would you like to kind of jump in on that? Yeah, I think the question around pain and illness and chronic pain and illness, um, especially in the context of North American Europe, places that I've primarily lived most of my life, um, are is, is designed in such a way that the pain of Black people isn't often recognized to the point that it can lead to premature death. Um, one of the major examples of that, which I've written a little bit about, is the question around um, Black pain and people with wounds and um, mater what is termed maternal mortality during birth and experiencing mortality in that way. And I, I say birth people with wounds or people who, who give birth to acknowledge that non-binary people and transgender people are also um, giving birth um, and are part of that system. Um, and, and part of what goes on and has been documented in the cases, at least in the, uh, the United States, where um, maternal mortality for Black people is higher um, today than it was 30 years ago. And a lot of that has to do with endemic racism and in medical institutions, um, people not being believed, the pain that they experience, um, the assumption that they can handle it and aren't, aren't being provided with the same kind of care and attention. Um, and some of the more famous cases of this, of near-death experiences, has been um, documented by like people like Serena Williams, like one of the greatest athletes alive today, um, and even Beyonce, who has more money than I will ever even be able to see or imagine. Um, and so the fact that even amongst upper class, very elite black um, people with wounds, that there's this phenomenon of um, near death experiences for something as, as intimate and deadly as uh, giving birth uh, goes to show how much of an issue that pain isn't uh, acknowledged or recognized. And even on, on from like a personal antidotal level, um, as someone who battles with chronic pain and how medical institutions have um, either in some cases dismissed that pain or in some cases the provided care has been an ongoing struggle. Um, and it, if it would not be, that struggle on one hand is tied to my gender, my race, my, in, in the case of Germany, also being a, a a migrant and then also being a darker skinned black person and what that comes with and how colorism and anti darker skinned black colorism impacts one's um, ability to get care uh, if one even has health care. <laughs> so th there's so many complications to it that, um, that has been well documented by people like Keith Waylou, who's a, a history professor at uh, Princeton University who's written on pain, especially tied to sickle cell uh, anemia um, and other forms of pain in that history. Um, and you know, people, um, historians such as Harriet Washington um, in Medical Apartheid also documents this a bit in her work uh, as an African-American scholar and historian. Um, I think one of the things that um, has helped in the process of like acknowledging that history is to say, okay, what, what do I do with that history? Um, how do I 
uh, try to change that. And what has been really great is the work of Black doctors today um, who um, aren't only you know, using that history to empower themselves as medical practitioners, but also to empower the communities that they come from. Uh, where, and if we think about the history um, that, for example, Alondra Nelson has written about in Body and Soul, where the Black Panther Party um, in, um, when they when they formed, they also had like community health clinics um, and provided community um, care so that people could at least, if, even if they didn't have health, like a formal health care program, um, were able to get their basic needs taken care of. Um, and this is very pivotal and important um, to ensure that um, Black people could get their basic <laughs> Um, uh, um, situations taken care of. And also if people weren't able to afford medication or a doctor's visit, then the community would come together for that. And I think in, in, in seeing those histories, whether it's tied to uh, the Black Panther Party and the text by Alondra Nelson is Body and Soul, um, I highly recommend it. Or if it's like these new initiatives, especially in the context of this current pandemic, um, knowing that history and then doing something to change that history is absolutely pivotal, important, so that we are, so that we don't live <laughs> as pained subjects. Because um, uh, part of, and I think someone had asked this, like, what can we do if we don't just, we can't just tear down the system? Well, there are actual reforms that could be done, and part of that, those reforms means knowing the history, seeing what worked, what hasn't, following the lead of Black people who've been doing this. Um, and then also just like adopting, you know, Robin D.G. Kelly's ideas of freedom dreams. Like, what does it mean to imagine? Collectively sit down and find the time to say, these are the things we want, these are the things we need, and we don't have to compromise on it. Um, that, and, and that, that, is, that imagination is so important in a moment um, where, you know, capitalism would love for us to not even think for ourselves. Capitalism would love for us to be working all the time. Like, but actually if we want to embody a revolutionary spirit, if we want to change the world, that means actually spending the time to imagine, to think, to dream, and to put that into action as a collective. I just want to jump in really quickly. I put in the chat here about a documentary that was uh, released uh, not too long ago called Dope is Death, which uh, talks about the life of Mutulu Shakur, who is still in uh, US uh, uh, federal prison at the moment. F Mutulu Shakur was one of the Black Panthers in Harlem who started a clinic, an acupuncture clinic that was uh, free and accessible to all. And it was a uh, um, uh, detox clinic for detoxifying against heroin because at the time there was the heroin epidemic that now we talk about in terms of opioids epidemic but at the time it was heroin it was vilified it was introduced by the government that itself to weaken the neighborhoods um, of Harlem and then later on uh, the President Nixon had introduced methadone, which was again another opioid, another addictive drug that did not solve the issue. And the reason why the clinic was completely dismantled was because Mutulu and all the practitioners were put on the most wanted list, most uh, dangerous people in America, because they were threatening the, um, the health business system that America uh, thrives, thrives on. And uh, sadly, has been in, 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 in high security prison since the 80s. And now there is a big uh, revival of the case, if you will, because of the documentary to uh, free Mutulu Shakur. He has been diagnosed with uh, stage three bone marrow cancer and his uh, family and, and, uh, 
and supporters are, are putting together a, a way to get him out of jail. So please support and take a look. I'm gonna put, a, if you all want to do something for Black History Month, I would really encourage that you go to uh, Mutulu Shakur's website. I'm gonna put it right here to support, um, to support him because he has been, uh, you know, imprisoned on uh, wrong accusations. Uh, and, and once the FBI is involved, it's the same in abroad with the CIA. There's very little we can do. It's very difficult to ex to get them out. Um, and so this is uh, this is important if you want to do something for Black History Month. Of course, not just one thing, but this is a very important thing. And it's related to what Edna was saying about the access to health, the access to healthcare. Sorry, the access to free healthcare, um, also natural uh, or um, uh, in this case, acupuncture, which is a non-chemical uh, health uh, solution, let's say. Um, and so please take a look at the documentary. It's beautiful. <laughs> Thank you. And I, I love that we ended up talking about the Black Panther Party and um, that we kind of ended up in this, in this direction because I think... Um, if you know, I, I highly recommend that uh, everyone who is watching this definitely take a look at the actual programs of the Black Panther Party because there's, we have a couple of questions about imagination and how do we imagine a world's otherwise structures? You know, how do we dismantle this? How do we navigate this? Which is something that we've been kind of going back to a question that we've been going back to, and. Uh, there is so much imagination in that, in those programs. And, uh, you know, um, they had the healthcare programs, they had the free food programs, um, the free breakfast for school children programs. So they have, um, if you look, um, there is a book, I, I'm not remembering the, the name of the editor right now, but it's from the Huey Newton Foundation. And um, it, um, it kind of describes uh, all of these different programs in the Black Panthers Party um, that the B Black Panthers Party was developing and was working on. And if you look, you know, there's explanations on how to um, articulate like a free food program, for instance, or what do you need to like, what kind of uh, reach out do you need? What kinds, you know, um, what each person involved in a program like this needs to do. What are the roles? It's super, super interesting. And it is, I think, um, uh, very much an exercise in imagination. How can we, uh, we fight against these structures and how can we create things that ultimately um, are affirmations of life, I would say, um, that ultimately, uh, promote uh, life and survival. Survival, I would say, even um, in the terms that I've seen Audre Lorde speak about survival, which is not only, you know, that there's this tendency of understanding survival as just like getting by. And what she says is survival is not just that. That is, um, survival is leaving something beyond ourselves to, and that to me is such a beautiful definition of, of survival. But, um, but I think that, you know, thinking about this definition of survival and thinking about 
something like this, something like these programs that the Black Panthers Party um, developed, um, I think it gives us such a beautiful entry point into that. And I think also, um, particularly the fact that, um, that they were also looking not only um, to, let's say, the immediate material needs of people, but also spiritual needs and also looking into um, well-being, not only as like the very basic to get by, but thinking about abundance. Um, I think that refers me also a lot to the work of Adrienne Marie Brown, a wonderful um, activist and community organizer um, who in the book Pleasure Activism talks about um, or uh, incites us to reject the idea of scarce justice. She talks about you know, what we're doing here, what our objectives should be is to build a world where we can share abundance and not only um, get satisfied with crumbs because this idea of like, we can, you know, this is what we get. This is as good as we can go. This will lead us, will lead us nowhere. And I think um, coming from this and thinking about also um, not only uh, satisfying these very basic needs, but thinking about thriving and abundance and, and um, all these questions that go a little bit beyond um, scarce justice. I think this connects a lot to conversations that we were having uh, before and, and when we were preparing um, the idea of also thinking of abundance as something that is shared not only um, amongst us uh, human beings, but also with other beings and uh, abundance as also living in harmony, in connection and in commonality with other beings. And I wanted to bring that conversation um, a little bit more towards this and thinking about um, how these processes of learning and unlearning, unlearning uh, the, the uh, harmful, um, let's say, um, standard behaviors or standard ways of navigating the world of capitalism and, and coloniality uh, to, uh, to learn and imagine and be able to, to have the space of imagination um, for building other worlds. How do you uh, kind of navigate that? We have a couple of questions that, um, that bring that. And I think um, there's one here that goes into a particularly, um, yeah, like thinking about um, being in nature as like a way of healing and, uh, and the connection to nature also as a practice of care and healing. And I wanted to hear if you have something to say about that. Jonah, Edna, Celine. I feel yeah. like we talked a lot. Okay. Go ahead. Oh, yeah, I guess I can go. Um, one thing I would say, and we talked about this, I guess it was several weeks ago when we um, kind of came together virtually, is that um, as a person who is a descendant of slaves and also just someone 
who acknowledges that um, there was not just through forced migration um, from the African continent to the Caribbean, but another set of migrations from the Caribbean to North America, that my family have a very complicated uh, relationship to the land or any kind of land. Um, and in some ways it's tied to um, dispossession, <laughs> it's tied to um, uh, environmental destruction, drought, um, and it's also just tied to, in, in my case, um, urbanization and, and for a long time feeling that nature was not supposed to be accessible to me, um, was not supposed to be something that felt safe, mostly because it was tied to being born and raised in a, a white majority country where um, nature could be quite hostile. In fact, um, till today, there is the Ku Klux Klan in the United States um, running around um, and uh, spewing fascism and anti-Black racism. And even here in Europe and Germany, there are neo-Nazis in some rural spaces and small towns. Um, and that discomfort is very heartfelt. Um, so this, the, the, the thing about what it means for me to access nature in the global north is, is complicated to this history of dispossession over being forced to work a certain land um, and then also just the hostility that comes with anti-Blackness um, in some of those spaces. At the same time, um, I, I, I do find when I take a hike, um, when I'm in an environment surrounded by trees, when I'm um, in the water swimming, when I'm sea kayaking, uh, when I'm able to be by myself on top of a mountain and really be in nature, it is therapeutic. Um, it is beautiful. And it's not unique for me um, to, as a Black person to have experienced that. There's a history um, to all kinds of Black people, whether it's the writer James Baldwin going to the Swiss countryside and that, you know, having those mixed feelings of uh, exclusion and the white gaze, but at the same time being compelled and inspired by the beauty. Gwendolyn Brooks writing poetry about this, Lucille Clifton, white, uh, African-American woman writing poetry about being in nature, that Black people of nature um, has been something that has been quite well documented. Uh, and there are, till this day, Black farmers who live in, off the land um, on a global scale, um, something that um, doesn't often get acknowledged, especially if you think about the comparison of like mass corporations that are in agribusiness. Um, so I think for me, one of the things that I'm, I'm learning is unpacking the complex and tense um, and sometimes violent histories um, because of the legacy of slavery um, that make me, uh, or at least in the past, have thought that nature wasn't for me <laughs> and trying to find um, some form of healing, some form of connection. Um, to nature and, and, and knowing that it, it belongs to me <laughs> without wanting to destroy it, like we, we should be able to access it in an, a humane, as humane of a way as possible that doesn't further the destruction um, that capitalism and uh, carbon emissions have done. So I think that um, reading the histories, connecting to these spaces and um, has been absolutely important for me um, while also acknowledging um, and maybe this is the point for me that going to, through nature with other Black people has also been important. Um, documenting some of that stuff, um, even doing something like a selfie, like I'm here, <laughs> to, has also just been a, a, a cheeky way uh, of, of thinking about what it means for someone like me to be in nature uh, unapologetically um, as I move through this world. 
Yeah, I'm, I'm very much reminded now also of when we talk about this connection to nature, um, also how this conversation kind of goes into, again, practices, of course, of practices of care. But I'm reminded very much of the work of people like Bryant Terry, uh, a vegan chef, um, that particularly um, his work kind of centers around um, Black cuisine, Black Afro-diasporic cuisine, and, uh, and also how um, access to proper food is not really something that is a given, right? And he's been working a lot with, um, with those questions. So um, I think we can perhaps kind of go here because you know I think this this of course pertains to practices of care and when we talk about like food which is a topic I love um, but when we talk about food and when we talk about food as care um, and also as way of strengthening bonds within communities and um, bonds of kinship right which are not necessarily family um, but bonds of kinship even beyond the the concept of the nuclear family um, we're talking about uh, affection and we're talking about also kindness, which is a theme in a question that we got um, here also. Um, so I'm going to kind of bring this uh, a little bit in that direction. So this attendee says, having been in a life-threatening natural disaster, I experienced on a profound level the importance of kindness. It stayed with me ever since and I've witnessed its power to transform. Just wondered if the panelists have wanted to add anything in relation to that. Yeah, I mean, just to say my experience, it's, it's the people that have the least material resources to give that often are the kindest um certainly in terms of the, you know the food bank use and things like that in the uk is, is massively increasing when you look at who gives to the food banks it's not um the people who are going around driving the flash cars and living in the big houses it's it's the people who can barely afford to feed themselves but can empathize and have and understand the struggle and, and it's that element almost of mutual aid, I think, rather than charities is really, really important. So the kindness becomes an element of mutual aid. We're benefiting with each other um, as opposed to a charitable act, you know, which is kind of a wave of a hand. Um, you know, that whole idea of the saviour is moving away from the idea of the saviour and looking more at kind of, um, like I say, mutual aid and solidarity. Um, and I think kindness comes into that a lot when people have had lived experiences where they have, have been in certain situations that it's easy to then empathise with other people who are in really, really traumatic situations as well. Yeah, thank you. That's, that's a super important aspect of that. Um, Celine, I know that you need to go very soon is there anything that you would like to add i just want to thank you all for this uh, very uh, inspiring conversation and uh, i hope we all uh, stay connected and uh, thank you for the wonderful questions and again i would encourage the audience to 
go further than asking questions, but to take uh, significant steps towards uh, their own unlearning and their own history. Because again, all of the things that we're talking about, whether it's uh, this, the the slave Atlantic, uh, the the cross Atlantic slave trade, or the war in Lebanon, or the the war in Vietnam, or um, what happened to indigenous people all over the world, it's it's not our history. This is also your history, and this is how you can be a part of it in a, in a way that's meaningful without having to lean on anyone to give you the, 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 the information, but to go actively looking for this information um, and to, to take on the responsibility to address your own internalized um, bias, your own internalized racism, colonialism, the way that your mind is structured, the way that you evaluate value and you um, attach value to certain things versus another. It's like a whole journey. And I, I don't want to put it under the guise of this is like your self-help slash uh, uh, wellness uh, project. This is, this is your responsibility for us all to exist with this environmental empathy that we were talking about in this uh, conversation. This is your your responsibility because with privilege comes responsibility because you have power and not, you must take that power so for you guys if you're thinking I have nothing I don't have any resources I don't have any money that's all an illusion you have way more than you can even imagine and you can't even imagine so don't even begin to imagine but just take on this power uh, seriously this responsibility seriously and lean on yourself do do more than the average be very generous towards others. And uh, and I think all these little actions will add up. And I want to thank you, Luisa. Thank you, Leslie. Thank you, Edna. And thank you, Sona, Shona. And uh, um, I'm so sorry I have to leave, but I have something at, at 1040. And it's been so long, but thank you so much. Thank you, Celine. Thank, thank you. you. <laughs> thank you. Bye. Okay, um, so with that, I think I, I wanted to, maybe let's, let's start wrapping up. What do you think, Leslie? Yeah, I think that sounds good. We've had a very, very uh, wide ranging conversation. So um, yeah, good luck with the <laughs> pulling, the, <laughs> pulling the threads together right now. <laughs> um, I think to, to, Kind of start maybe wrapping up. I wanted to bring up something that I was reading the other day. Actually, um, as I mentioned, I've been teaching, and um, it is first of all, I think, a practice of care. Particularly right now during a pandemic, teaching is needs to be understood as a practice of care, and uh, I take a lot of inspiration from uh, from people like Paulo Freire, um, the Brazilian educator, in my approach. And uh, we've been, you know, uh, throughout the past year that I've been teaching, um, we've been going through so many of these topics too. And recently in, um, in a class a couple of weeks ago, and teaching keeps me very much reading and very much uh, active in that sense and always kind of like finding new things, uh, new points, but one of the things that we read and discussed a couple of weeks ago was a text by Angela Davis um, from, um, uh, from a, a book uh, on like 
Ferguson and Palestine and transnational solidarities. It's particularly this chapter on transnational solidarities, which, um, which we discussed. And one of the things that she points out in this uh, chapter, which is a transcription of a talk that she gave in Istanbul, she says, we do not know how to talk about the genocide of indigenous peoples. We do not know how to talk about slavery, but increasingly young activists are learning how to acknowledge the intersections of these stories, the ways in which these stories are cross hatched and overlaid. This is a talk that, um, that Davis gave during the Ferguson protests and she mentions uh, right in the beginning of this chapter um, how grateful she uh, still is for the movement that she saw also in Turkey when she was imprisoned um, and the, the international solidarity, the network of international solidarity that, um, that she felt around her, that she saw uh, coming together around her as she, in a moment where she uh, was being actively persecuted by the government of the United States um, as a member of the Black Panther Party and uh, and how important that was for her to even be able to be there at that moment and be seeing and witnessing um, that historical moment. And that um, I think brings me to, uh, um, yes, exactly. It's on transnational solidarity, the name of the chapter as Leslie said in the chat. Um, super recommended, the whole book is super recommended of course. Um, but I'm, I'm bringing this up because I think these moments when we're able to kind of work through these threads and work through these topics and see the connections between them, you know, um, how uh, there is a connection between um, struggles related to class in the UK and, you know, basically what I want to say uh, and something that, of course, Angel Davis says in a much more uh, much more, I would say, coherent way, but, um, and it's something that I guess is repeated a lot in activist circles, and I really do believe that it is true, is that it is impossible for any one of us to uh, be liberated if others are not. We cannot build movements and we cannot advance if we do not build these networks and these uh, networks of solidarity that allow all of us to go on and recognizing the differences and recognizing the different needs that we have, that we all have in these struggles, but understanding that. And I want to kind of connect, I guess, to, um, to also the act of witnessing one another. That is something that Davis also mentions in this text these acts of seeing one another and talking about these things and um, are the acts of, honestly, of revolutionary love that I think are so important right now. Um, we're living a particularly difficult historical moment where you know we've been kind of thrown into it without much uh, preparation and we've all been kind of trying to survive it and trying to navigate this a moment that brings uh, 
struggles in relation to mental health, in relation to livelihood. Um, I mean, the, when we talk about, you know, um, class um, in relation to, uh, to migration, migration status, um, in relation to all those things. So I just wanted to kind of bring that um, into the room and, uh, and yeah, just like thinking about these acts of being together and witnessing one another as um, also part of uh, a politics of love really. And I wanted to ask um, if Edna and Shona have some final comments in relation to this. No, I think that's a beautiful place to end on. Just being together, solidarity and radical acts of love. I think in the current times, um, both in terms of COVID and sort of environmental crisis going forward and what we need to do to save the planet, it's radical acts of love, isn't it? That's what it all comes down to. Yeah, I would echo all of that. And, and just to add that um, one of the things that has been so important for me in this moment is really if you know people have the time and the resources, um, finding the time to read and reread and to really support the works of people who've been theorized around this, but also just like finding the space of figuring out how do we retool and reimagine um, justice and solidarity um, on a more concrete level, even if it's at the local level. And as Celine said before leaving, um, it's um, some of the stuff can be within the power within the context of the issues um, that impact the local community. Um, and one of the things, and I'm imagining most people here from who are listening are from uh, the UK uh, that I found inspiring is to see the statue of Ed uh, Colston being taken down in Bristol. Um, a, I didn't know who he was. <laughs> I didn't know his statue existed, but the fact that it happened and now everyone knows about it really enlivens the conversation in the British context about the Britain's role in the transatlantic slave trade. And the fact that that statue was visibly present within the city um, and could be taken down actually helps to enliven a local debate in the city of Bristol um, and its um, implications uh, in that violence. And so I think that uh, part of the beauty of this moment, even though there's you know massive, uh, there's a pandemic, um, is that it's actually forcing people to think, read, reimagine, um, and get together to tear down the monuments that are tied with the racial violence. So um, I, I believe in people's ability to change the world and I hope that others do too. I just wanted to add, like, just to thank you guys so much for this conversation. I know it went in a couple of different ways uh, all the way through because we were obviously responding to people's comments and contributions and questions. And I think what's really nice is that the subtlety of all these intertwining uh, ideas and moments of beauty and moments of love and moments of trust and care, they are part of like this ecology that we've been talking about and these different types of ecologies and thinking about the world as a different type of community and rethinking what we mean when we think about neighbours, when we think about the people we align ourselves with, the animals, plants, things, non-human beings that we align ourselves with and the place of 
access and uh, being allowed to exist in the way that you want to exist and the way that you've always existed. I think that all of these conversations are part of, you know, that intersectional approach that you're talking about, Louisa. And although it may not always be super obvious to everyone in the one moment how these things lay over, the second you start to pull the threads together, you realize that they go across everything and everyone. So I think it's been really beautiful to have such a wide ranging discussion and like thank you so much for responding so honestly, genuinely and thoughtfully to our audience's comments and uh, questions. And yeah, I just wanted to say thank you so much. Thank you, it's been wonderful. Thank you. Thank you so much for inviting me to part of it. It's fascinating stuff. I wish we could carry on for another three hours, but probably we won't get bored. Do so. that over a wine when we're allowed to have a wine. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. Um, mm -hmm. I think if that's it, like mm -hmm. I'll do a little outro and just wrap up for fact if everyone's happy. Yeah. Thank you, Edna. Thank you, Shona, Leslie, Celine, and Fat. It's been great. Thank you. <laughs>